This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. It was podcast episode 130, Employee Evaluations, and Andrew and I were discussing the process of determining the criteria used to assess and measure an individual employee's performance when we made the point that there would be value in creating a process where upward evaluations can be implemented. One that allowed the employee to share their thoughts and opinions on what mattered to them from their managers, from their team leads, even their employers. We've decided to have that conversation and do just that. Welcome to episode 135, Employee Takeover. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Peterson, manufacturer of packed clad architectural metal cladding systems. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we are talking about what matters from an employee perspective. And to help us do that today, we brought in two guests to help us with this conversation because they probably have stronger opinions about this conversation from their position and where they're at in their careers than the insight that Andrew and I, as two old dudes, can bring. So we have two people on the show. The first up is Miranda Davis. After graduating top of her 2020 architecture studio at the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design, Miranda Davis joined Boca Powell as a design professional. 18 months post-graduation, Miranda became a licensed architect and project designer. I originally met Miranda when Marlon Blackwell called my past office and recommended that we hire her as a summer intern. She and I kept in touch, and when she graduated, I bamboozled her to come join me at Boca Powell, and she's been there working with me ever since. Also joining us is Marianne Scheer. Originally from Caracas, Venezuela, Marianne holds a bachelor's degree in architecture from Simone Bolivar University. She has an architecture license from Venezuela and is currently pursuing her second architecture license for the U.S. She's an AIA award-winning architect with experience that spans many different market sectors, as well as being a natural storyteller. Marianne currently works at O'Brien Architects as a project designer but her best years were from the time she sat just a few desks away from me when she worked at Boca Powell. I reached out to both Marion and Miranda, not because their names both started with the letter M, but because I know them both to be intelligent, well-spoken, conscientious people whose thoughts and opinions are rooted in their own values. I've seen both of them at work for years, and I know that they could navigate today's topic with sensitivity to not just articulate their own opinion, but could discuss their representative demographic fairly well. That's my fancy way of saying, I don't think they always agree with me. Hi, Miranda. Hi, Marianne. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Are you excited? Do you have some dread? I am very excited to finally be featured vocally on the podcast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you say that now. <laughs> <laughs> I am very excited to be able to be here with the old team back together. So that should be interesting. <laughs> I know we got we got part of the band back together today. Exactly. I can't believe that you guys have to put up with them all day, and then you volunteered to do this even after hours. Oh, I took a two year break. More time with Bob. <laughs> <laughs> all right, look, we don't need to focus on that part. <laughs> so I kind of talked about in the beginning. This topic came up when Andy and I were discussing employee evaluations and what we use to assess the people that work for us or under us or with us, however you want to phrase it, and we thought that. Some sort of upward evaluation would probably have some value. Kind of the way that kind of sussed out a little bit was, 
We're talking about what we want an employee. And it's like, well, what does an employee want in an employer? Like what matters to them? I know this is kind of maybe a pithy way to say it, but I go, nobody cares about dental plans when you're 25 years old. We're sitting there and we're interviewing and I have yet to have somebody go, I'd like to hear more about this healthcare plan you have. Yeah. We thought, well, why don't we just ask them? Why don't we get a couple of people on the show and we ask them? So I have a whole bunch of questions for us to talk about. And I want to start with, and this is a good one for me. This is a very self-serving episode already. I'm just going to tell you that right now. We'll see. Okay. So firm transparency. That's the first topic I want to chat about. And this really has to do with when evaluating potential employers, how important is firm transparency to you? What specific aspects of transparency matter the most? And would any answer to that question influence career decisions that you might consider? Yeah, I think obviously transparency is incredibly important. Nobody wants to be lied to or start a job and find out that what was promised isn't what's really happening in the firm. In terms of interviewing, you can focus on whether or not the interviewer is dodging questions in any way, like if they are not open and honest in sharing information that you might be asking for, what you might be doing day one or what your role will be. They might need you to fill a very specific spot. They might not. And so I look for open, honest conversation and interviews and beyond for sure. Marianne, what about you? Yeah. So on my end, I think we all know when you're going into an interview and beyond that in that honeymoon phase that that firm is very transparent about what they do, the marketing content that they put out, but they're not always as open about how they operate. So from an internal standpoint of what are the firm's goals, how can I align or fit into their larger scheme of things, what's their financial health like so that I can make decisions in my own personal life that align to what's going on at work, and what is that design-making process and how are you a part of it? So it's more about, to me, the process and how you're plugged into that versus just it's easier to sell what your firm does than how they operate. Yeah. Okay. So Andrew, you got a question? I got a couple. I was just going to say, so it sounds like that you're more interested in transparency with where you will belong into the firm as opposed to just general transparency about the firm itself or the way the firm operates. You mentioned operation a little bit, Marianne, but it was more focused on how you fit into that operation because I'm curious about what transparency really means. Yeah, that was going to be a question to Bob. Look, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what transparency means for me. So if someone says, hey, let's talk about transparency, it has to do with explaining either the motivation or the logic behind why you do what you do, as opposed to you just seeing what's on the summation side. So Miranda is one of the people that I mentor in the office. And so we'll have conversations. And I would say during whatever block of time we have, half that time is probably talking about, hey, this is what's going on in the office. This is what we're working on. This is what's coming up. Do you have any questions? Are you seeing anything in the office? You go, huh, wonder what that means. What's going on over there? It's not gossip. It's the idea that, for example, when we talked about employee evaluations, Miranda and I had a little chit chat about, hey, this is what I'm working on. And so this is something that you're probably going to see start around the first of the year. This is coming. And this is the direction we're taking so that if she has any question. Or quite honestly, since it, we've talked about mentorship being a two-way street, she can provide some feedback that might actually help me do what I've set myself to do. But Marianne, I got a question for you. One of them had to do with the answers you gave. What happens when you start? What's the plan for me as a potential new employee when I get hired? 
How much do you think those things change when you're getting your first job out of school or you're five years out of school or you're 12 years out of school? I would imagine the questions stay somewhat in the same ballpark, but they probably become a lot more explain your goals to me as opposed to what kind of projects or market sector are you going to be putting me in? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I went through it when I first interviewed Boca. I was just looking for exposure experience, and that was my highest priority versus a few years in. I'm still looking for that, and I think my portfolio and experience will always be growing, but it's more of, is it a mentorship thing now? Is it, how am I growing within the firm to eventually be management or more than that versus just working on my specific skill set? So I think as years go by and you start learning all these new things to kind of evolve into a different person too. So I think that's another thing, like what transparency and my priorities were when I first interviewed at a firm is different than what I look for now. So I think sometimes when you see people changing firms or getting burnt out, it's just more of the person who was management when they first interviewed that person they were put into this role that never evolved and that person that did. So it's always just trying to go back to aligning with, it's a two-way street, like you said, it's a two-way relationship. So how are you growing the firm while that person's also growing themselves? Yeah, I can't speak to what that does a few years from now, but I think that's the gist of it. It's a two-way relationship. Yeah. Miranda, so since you're still at the office and you mm-hmm. In certain regard, your entire career has been spent in one office. And I would imagine that maybe because of the way that the relationship you and I have, that the flow of information is pretty good. Mm -hmm. We might be the gold standard for how things go because we've known each other years before I was at Boca Powell or even you were at Boca Powell. So I would imagine that the idea of that level of communication, I'm curious, does that give you some sort of buy into what's happening. So even if you see something that maybe isn't jiving with what you want, you know that somebody's trying to do something about it, or you know there's a plan in place, or it's a work in progress. Does that move the needle for you at all? Yes. And it's really the last thing you said, knowing what's going on and knowing the pulse on things and knowing that if something is being changed or something is wrong that needs fixing, that those things are happening in the background. I'm not in those rooms, but I know that those things are in progress. That really gives me a lot of confidence in the office, just knowing what's going on. It does create a little bit of a sticky situation sometimes because I do feel like I may know more about what's going on than others. And obviously, like you said, this is the gold standard. We would want everyone to have this kind of transparency, but I do find myself having to be a little bit careful sometimes around others. But that's really the only sticky bit about it. It does make me feel very confident. And I think that if I didn't have a pulse on some of those things, I would have more anxieties in the office than I do. Yeah. Andrew, do you have something you want to chuck in there? No, I'm still trying to digest a little bit because to me, there's a bit of that familiarity that propagates what you guys are just talking about. And I don't know that that's always a possibility. And it's definitely not a possibility in every office because some offices don't work that way. But I'm curious about, you guys talked about in the beginning of interviewing for something, but at least in my opinion, I feel like it would be almost impossible to get that level of transparency or even comprehension of that in an interview. Because again, still somebody's just pumping you what they think you want to hear. Yeah. So I'm curious as to 
how did you seek that out or how would you think to seek that out once you actually started working at a place? Yeah. So obviously the interview process is a whole different thing and people are going to embellish facts along the way. There's usually no way around that, but <sighs> impossible. But, you know, once you're there, like Bob and I's relationship in the office, the transparency, it is what it is. Like we information gets disseminated down to me. But I think why it's more important to me is that it gives me, like I said, confidence, but also the way that my mentorship and my higher ups are transparent with me makes me feel like I can be transparent with them. So I don't hesitate in telling them when I need something or when I want to work on something else, or mm. I feel like those things might not always happen or flesh out, but I have the confidence to ask for those things and to have those conversations. And I don't feel nervous to say, hey, I've got a doctor's appointment tomorrow. I'll be gone for an hour. There's no anxieties or nervousness around just telling people what I need, whether that be work-related or not work-related. This is happening. I'll be in later. You can count on me to do my work. So having that back and forth is really the part that's a needle mover for me. And I was going to add to it, I think that all goes back to building trusts. And yes, it's nothing you're going to build over an interview. It takes some time. There's nothing you can build on trust within a few hours. You have to spend time and create this connection with the people and invest in them. And then like Miranda's saying, if you know there's somebody advocating for you in a room and you know it might not be the best time for the firm, financial times may not be the best, but you still know that just like life, it comes in seasons. So we'll get through it, but there's a plan in place. There's people working for it. So I think it's more about the human connection in that side of things versus what you actually are working on and what the actual issues are. It's more about yeah. trusting each other to work on it through the good and bad times. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. I have, I have a bunch of these I want to get through. So I want to move on to the next topic that I identified. I titled it Path to Promotion. This really comes out of... I think I have like 12 people that I mentor in the office and it's a lot. And I think with the exception of all but two, promotion and what does this look like and what's the next step for me is, is part of check-ins that we do monthly. And so career growth and advancement are obviously they're essential to probably most young professionals in our industry. And so Marianne and Miranda, what do you look for in terms of an identified path within an organization? How important is that? Do you know if I do A, B, and C, that equals this? Or do you have it? Are you aware of it? What does it mean to you to know what's expected of you in order to take those next steps? So when I first started at Book of How, I think personally, I was looking for more opportunities in general to build on my skill set. That later changed into what's the framework around me building on this, but also stepping up my game so people can learn from me, but that I'm also progressively learning from somebody else. And a lot of that, I feel, is more geared towards the higher up and management also have to find the time to pass on some of that knowledge so that you can step up and have that opportunity while you're now mentoring the younger people. So it's sort of like training your replacement at some point. I think initially when I first started working in architecture, I never realized that was going to be a big deal for me. But now a few years in, I'm definitely more geared towards there's got to be some type of framework there's got to be an investment of time on both sides to grow within the firm and i don't think everybody's thinking this way right so that's the other part that i see nowadays a lot of people are just happy with what they do at work and then they check out and then they do life on the side 
I think some people are a little more intentional about work just because there's other motivations. For me, it's that's the reason why I live in the U.S. So I think in that sense, I'm a little more intentional or hungry in some aspects. But having the people to coach me through that and ask the right questions has allowed me more clarity to see how I can also help out the firm while growing within it. Seems reasonable. What about you, Miranda? So like Marianne said, when you first out of school, when you're young, it's hard to not just want to be a sponge. Like you want to just learn everything from everyone. And you may not necessarily be thinking, well, when am I going to get from design professional one to design professional two? But there's definitely an evolution as you grow. And I think having a very clear and distinct path to advancement or promotion or both is very important. We don't have target goals, like sales goals, like other industries might. We don't have, you need to do this task or this kind of coordination in order to hit the next level. It's less quantifiable in our profession, but I think that having specific timeframes, you're working towards a goal, you're adding responsibilities to your plate along the way, and there's a light at the end of the tunnel. This is where we're going. We're going to get there, and then we keep moving. If you start to take on those responsibilities that are above your stated job title, you might be really excited at first. But if there's no, like I said, light at the end of the tunnel, if there's no timeline to that promotion or that actual next step, okay, now I'm doing the next job. Now I have that title, that step in your career. If there's no clear path to that and you are just continually taking on more responsibility with no end in sight, I think that that energy can fade over time. So you definitely want to have a clear path to the next step. And you know, the next step is not the end all be all. You're going to continue to move past that and move on from that. But having a line in the sand that you have crossed means a lot to people. And I think that it should be clearly stated and talked about with your mentors regularly. I wanted to add something real quick to that. The other thing that I think I've learned over time is looking for that advancement only from your management or your firm sometimes is frustrating because even though they're trying to do everything they can to get you up there, it takes time. It takes work. There's a lot of firm politics. So personally, I've found an outlet in growing my own skill set outside of work as well and growing my own network outside of work. So I think it's a little unfair sometimes that we rely on leadership to prop us up, even though we know our value. It's more about their steps. It takes time. They're working on it. So I think one of those other shifts that I've had mentally has been before it was just, who's my manager? Who's my mentor? Are they doing something for me? And now I'm trying to, what am I doing for them that's not in my project? It wasn't originally my my responsibility, but now I'm more of an asset to them if I bring in these other things from my network from events, from whatever it is, AIA. So just trying to find those other things outside of work has, I think, propped me up to be more helpful at work and not only depend on leadership to advance my career. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by David R. Mercer, CSI, AIA Allied Member and Territory Sales Manager for Peterson, maker of PacLad Architectural Metal Cladding Systems. David has been with Peterson since 2016 and has been in the architectural metals industry since 1991, holding positions in sales and management 
for product manufacturers and distributors. Hi, David. Thank you for being with us this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Bob. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's always good to see you as well. Yep. Thanks for joining us. I know we're making a habit of this, getting together and three of us having chats. Yeah. So we've talked about a bunch of different products in the time that we've spent with each other. And we're going to talk about a couple more today. And I thought that what we'd start off with is the PackClad HT, otherwise known as the high temperature underlayment. And depending on your roof assembly, even the polyiso underlayment boards. So let's start with the HT underlayment. Absolutely, Bob. PackClad HT underlayment, high temp, completely designed specifically to go underneath our metal roof panel systems. It's a very versatile product for us. The product resists cracking, drying, and rotting, helps protect the roof structure, the interior space from water infiltration, providing a long-term weatherproofing performance at a very low life cycle cost. It's a key component in these metal roof panel systems, and it's designed to resist that extreme temperature underneath the roof panel system up to 250 degrees without any degradation or loss of adhesion. It's a concealed weatherproofing system. It's not going to detract from the beauty of the metal roof panel system. So aesthetically, it's going to be hidden underneath the panel system, but it's a key component. I think architects probably appreciate that fact more than almost any others. I don't want to see my high temperature underlayment as an overlayment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The other key part of this product is sometimes the projects do take a little bit of time, but it can be applied early on in the project to help dry in the structure with the metal panels to come after. So it, it can be exposed for a period of time prior to the installation of the metal roof panel system. I think a lot of architects, and I know speaking just for myself, that idea of getting my building weather tight early on and how that peel and stick high temperature underlayment can help when I'm putting a metal roof in. One of the things that makes the difference is it comes in different colors. So there's a black film version and there's a white underlayment version and they have different exposure days as I understand it. The PackClad HT designed to be exposed to sunlight for more than 60 days in the black film version. And the white underlayment offers exposure time of 180 days. Yep. You know, that's a good piece of information to know because if you're working on like a really big project and you've got guys all over the place, there might be some reason to go, oh, I need some additional time. Yeah, that's a great point. So tell us about the installation process. Yeah, it's very quick and easy product to install. It's going to ensure the weather tightness at the lap seams. It's going to seal around the roof fastener used to hold the clips down. It's got a self-sealing property so that when those penetrations happen, it seals around that. And it's got the split relief film on the back side that helps with that fast and easy installation. That's the peel and stick version. Correct. And that's where it gets its name, right? It's the pull piece off of one side and makes it sticky, and that's what helps you adhere it to your deck assembly. Yep. You get it lined up. And as you work it across, you're releasing that film on the backside and sticking it down in place. Nice. It works really quick and easy out there in the field. So one of the reasons we're talking about this is this concept that you guys have from the deck up. So can you talk a little bit about that? One of the things that PackClad does in the marketplace is that we offer our weather tightness warranties. And within that, we want to control that assembly. And one of the products with, contained in that assembly from time to time, depending on the application, whether it's new or retrofit, is polyiso. 
we offer that either your standard polyiso at the facer, which the PACHT can be applied to that, or the other alternative is, is that insulation board could be supplied with a nail base on top, which is the more traditional application for the PACHT. So the polyiso that PACLAD is offering, it can be utilized either in low slope or high slope applications, and it's approved for multiple decking materials to go over it. And lead credits are available when you're working with that product in your roof assembly. So to wrap that all up, PACLAD is working on that concept of providing everything from the deck up and then owning that assembly with a weather tightness warranty. That sounds good. That's wonderful. Hey, David, thanks for taking time today and educating us on not only the PACLAD HT underlayment, but giving us some information about polyiso boards. Appreciate that. Yeah, thanks a lot. Andrew, Bob, thank you for your time today. It's always a pleasure. Look forward to the next time. Wonderful. To learn more, visit packclad.com or send an email to info at pack-clad.com. Find your local representative at packclad.com by clicking on the rep locator link at the top of the website or call 1-800-PACCLAD. Well, Andrew can probably talk about this a little bit. I'm going to tee it up for him, but I want to tee it up by saying what you just got through describing was something that like every small firm relies upon because a firm that has a hundred people in it, we have resources. Getting lunch and learns, that's easy. Us having a dedicated QAQC person to help you review drawings and teach you how to navigate the smack in the manual, like those exist in a larger firm. When you're in a small firm, nobody's there to tell you how to do anything most of the time. And so you really rely on things that happen outside the office to bolster your skill set or know what's going on. And Andrew has spent the entirety of his career in a small firm, and he is heavily leveraged in volunteering for like the AIA. He's kind of done it all in his local chapter. Yeah. I think that is a, a good point of trying to find professional growth outside of work if you're not getting that fulfillment at work. My career, I think, is gained a lot from that, maybe even more so than from actually owning and operating my own office to a certain extent. But I think it's important to realize that. And again, I think maybe sometimes when you first get out of school, that's hard for you to wrap your brain around and realize that I have to get professional fulfillment outside of work in some capacity, probably, in order to even advance my career at work. Yeah. The other thing I think that's interesting, back to what, what y'all were talking about, was this notion of, and maybe it's more of a question, but I think you mentioned it a little bit about upper management may want you to grow and promote, but there's always not the capacity for that. In other words, I think, again, this is just me, but like first out of school, you think, well, it's easy to get a promotion. All I got to do is change my title and move me up and it's that. But the more you work in a firm in an office, you realize that it's not quite that way, that there's only so many people that can be at this certain level in order for the office to function properly. And that you can't have 50 project architects or project designers and then two people working below them because the structure doesn't work out right. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, like if those things started to click once you'd been working for a while or comments about that idea. Yeah, I was going to say, I think Miranda and I became close friends because of exactly what you were saying, Andrew, it was more of you kind of start realizing the two mindsets at work. There's people who will just go in, do their work and get out and they're fine with it versus the people who want to build on what they're doing and grow. And there's merit to both. I think you need both to have a healthy team 
and have it like you say everybody needs to find their own spot but not everybody can be project architects because then it's unbalanced so it's something I didn't realize at first, but it's something that I realize now. I don't know if it's just because a few years in, and everybody starts figuring out, okay, I've had this amount of exposure. I've done these many projects. And now what's the next step? And for some people, that is the next step. They're just going to get better what they do versus other people like Miranda and I are always just asking a lot of questions and being curious. And we kind of figured out that from a personality standpoint, that that's just something that we're driven towards. It might have to do something with our backgrounds. It might not, but it's definitely, you can tell once you've been in a firm for a certain amount of time, there's a very evident differentiation in different types of workers. And I don't think that I can say personally I've experienced that. I don't think that I've experienced the the next level being at full capacity. And so there's no room for me until someone moves out. Mm -hmm. But you definitely realize over time that you being in that role is not just about me and my professional development and what I have going on and what I would like to learn. There's a system in place. It's a company. We have to have teams that are structured well, and we have to have the right people on the right projects and the right teams at the right moment. And it all has to work together. And so how can I be part of the system, not just thinking about where I want to be? Although most of the time, it seems like those things do align if, if you make your needs clear. And I think also there's a lot of different titles that you think just because there's a roadmap doesn't mean that you're A or B. It's just more about how are you a part of the team versus just what your title is, I think is what I've began to notice too. I want to throw something in before we move on to the next section. So when you're in a small firm, titles don't mean squat. Yeah. I never care. I didn't have a title. Like it didn't, it didn't matter. Like I was in a... I worked here. That was about the extent of it. Yeah. Employee number three. Yeah. yeah it did, you know, technically it was employee number one, but that's, let's not, let's not worry about that one. No, but it had to do with titles start to matter more when there's a hierarchy in place. And that's when you start, like there's a greater range in the age demographic of the people that work in the office. I didn't have a lane. When you work in a small office, there's no lane. You do all of it. In a larger firm, there's a lane. You got PAs and project architects and project managers and construction administration. And you got everybody's got like this structure that's part of it. One of the things that I wanted to clarify, and this is probably true for most firms. I'd be surprised. I don't think it's all of them, but it's probably a majority of them. There's actually two paths or promotions are considered. There is the job skills promotion, you going from an architect one to an architect two or a project manager to a senior project manager. And a lot of the hurdles that I go along with you being able to achieve those sort of promotions, it's a lot of it's just tied to experience. You can't rush it. You can't make it go faster because it's just going to take a while for you to do it. The other part is there's, and Marion, this is a distinction. You may not be making this distinction. I'm going to be making it now. Management versus leadership. There's a difference between those two things. And in fact, I think, I don't know if it's the next show, but we have a show that's going to be dedicated to talk about leadership versus management. And there's a pathway that includes management as part of your job skills promotion. Like you start to manage a team. Like these are things that you do just in the course of moving from an architect one to an architect two or a project designer to a senior project designer. Leadership is something completely different. And it has to do with when you decide to take on additional responsibilities. And most of those times, you're not asked to take on those responsibilities. You just do it because you think, this could be better, and I think I know how to make it better, so you do it. That's when that stuff starts to show up. Just a little fun fact for the listeners. <laughs> so, 
All right, we'll get into that later. I promise you that's coming up again. Let's move on to the next section, or this is going to be an eight hour long uh, podcast. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the next one I have on here that I wanted to kind of unbox a little bit is titled Skill Development and Professional Job Training. So professional growth often depends on skill development, because that's what we're talking about, and training opportunities. And so how crucial is it for you to have access to ongoing training? And can you think of times when, when you had it and it helped you, or times when you didn't have it and you think it hurt you because you didn't have access to it? So this is something that I want to get into, because this is a pet project for me at the office now. I'm in the act of creating a, a dedicated training program for a very certain job skills that we don't currently have. It's not structured at least. So my answer would be super important, super crucial. You know, if you're investing in the firm, you want the firm to be investing in you. I think the main resource that people think about when asked this sort of question is, at least for younger folks in the office, would be access to materials for the ARES studying, for taking your ARE exams on your path towards licensure. I always tell younger people to ask those questions. What are your resources that are available? What books do you have in the office? Do you pay for the exams if I pass them? All of those things. But I think we should be looking further than that and asking the questions like, how easy do you make it for me to get my CEUs every year? And how can you provide training for jobs? Like, how can you provide me with project management training along the way, as long as I prove to be not worthy of those things, but prove that I have the initiative to make those things happen? Like, I want to dedicate myself and invest in the firm. And so I want the firm and management and right. mentorship and everything to be invested in me. You've demonstrated that you have a capacity. Yes. You have a capacity for these sorts of things. So how can the firm help you achieve what we all think that you have the ability to take on? Sure. That makes sense. Right. And then making an effort to put those programs in place and identify persons for them and continue that effort. I think it's super important. Well, you know, one thing I want to jump in here and ask Mariam before you get into this is that I would imagine since you're both at fairly big firms now, do you have these moments when you look at your team and you kind of look at another team and you're like, man, that team over there has that person and they're awesome. And as a result, the people that work with that person are killing it. Like they're getting something I'm not getting. How often does that run through your mind? Or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. So I think where I was before, it was a little more team space versus where I am now. There's more of a design team that overlaps with every other department. So I have a little less So like you're only working with this team. I think before I intentionally reached out to other teams because like you, Bob, mentorship has been a game changer for me. So how was I making the effort to find those opportunities to help myself professionally develop versus just working on a team and being pigeonholed to what work is so yes those things really helped me like mentorship reaching out to certain people to give me personalized advice and maybe it's AREs maybe it's I'm going through this life experience or career experience how did you deal with it what's your story because there is no roadmap when you get out of school you've always had a roadmap of some sort and then you get out and you come to realize what's my next step um there's no guidelines to it. So I think where I'm at right now, I think I'm lucky that 
I get to collaborate with more people, I'm a little more naturally exposed to it versus I think when I wasn't before it was more, I had to make a conscious decision to reach out to certain people because to me, mentorship has been huge. So, you know, one of the things that we did, at least we try to do when we have mentorship check-ins, you know, one of the questions I always kind of start with is what do you need? Is there anything that I can help you that you don't have access to? And Miranda and I had a conversation. I mean, I already believe this and I may have planted the seed. So that's not me taking credit, but I don't know if I've tainted the jury a bit. But when Miranda came and worked, here's a little flex for Miranda. When she came and worked as an intern in my office, within like a couple of weeks, all of a sudden she was like leading the other interns. They would look to her for what are we supposed to do? I mean, she just had this innate skill to understand what the objectives are, organize everybody in a way, gave them some direction. And in a small firm like ours, we loved it because we're like, we don't have to mess with the interns. We can just, they can be around it. We can engage with them, but not this kind of micromanaging that some of them sometimes need because we're like, we got Miranda to do this. So it was really great. So you could see that she's got this natural PM tendencies, these project manager tendencies, even before she might even known that a project manager was actually a title. So fast forward a couple of years, she's in the office and we had a conversation about it. And I said, hey, my job is to maybe help you understand what that actually means. So I went and talked to one of the senior PMs in the office and I said, hey, we take Miranda out to lunch and talk to her about what it means to be a project manager. Like, what does that look like? When we talked about experience mattering as you move up the skills promotion ladder, in some regards, Miranda, she's heard this before. I'm not like I'm talking about her like she's not here. She's years away from really meeting the criteria that we have in our office for what defines a project manager, because you kind of got to put a bunch of projects together before you get the reins to actually act as the lead of putting a team together that puts a building together. But it's still something like she's got PM responsibilities now. And that's got to be a big part of it. Part of that skill development and professional job training is you articulating what you want. And then ideally you work with people that'll say, all right, let's see if I can't make some connections here to get you what will help you. That's a huge advantage to having an employer who's actively listening to what you actually care about and would like to put your extra energy into versus just getting the work done has been a huge game changer as well. I think like you're saying, Miranda, you're geared towards a PM role versus when I was there is more, I love the storytelling aspect of it. I love branding. So I was lucky enough to get opportunities to go into environmental graphic design or branding as I was getting my other job done. So it definitely helped me feel valued. I was developing other skills and especially on something that might not be my day-to-day work, but it was something that I really cared about and somebody was smart enough to listen to me and give me that opportunity. So it's not always just listening to what they're going through at work specifically. It's like, what is their end goal? What other interests do they have? What are they going through? I think, again, going back to the connection with your mentor or whoever your manager or leadership person you're talking to is, I think from an employee standpoint, if you're not listening to what I'm saying and it's constantly being put out there, then it becomes an issue versus if you're actively listening. And again, that might not be Bob's rule, but he does it on a daily basis. It's such a huge skill set to have from a leadership standpoint in my head. Yeah. To that point, it's really about having someone that you feel like is in your corner. We talked about earlier, someone you can trust, someone you can talk to. But also just knowing that that person is advocating for you when you aren't in the room and having someone like that who's in your corner. 
But I do think that it's interesting how it feels like that goes all the way to the top in some ways. And this has not been my personal experience, but I see it. That mentor who is mentoring the younger people in the office or the less senior people in the office, if that mentor is very overloaded and has a lot of things on their plate, they might not necessarily have the free brain cells to really actively listen and understand what that mentee is saying and have the energy and the space in their brain to go and make those things happen. You might take notes, but to actually follow up on those notes and go figure out what needs to happen and to make it happen or make the moves and then report back. So I think that's interesting that some mentors are better at it than others, but there's got to be some follow-up. It can't just be a superficial question like, how are you doing? What do you need? And then nothing comes of it. I wouldn't say that it's worse, but like it's almost worse to have said those things out loud and don't feel like anything's coming out of it. So it, it has a lot to do with the follow-up. Agreed. So to change the subject here a little bit, I don't know why it didn't seem to be that critical for us older folks, but nowadays it seems like having this sense of belonging and purpose in your workplace is really important. So does feeling like you're part of something larger influence your level of satisfaction or even your level of loyalty to a firm or to a, an organization when you feel more connected or that you belong there? Of course. I was going to say, you're right out of school, you're putting in all these hours. It's fine to be the workhorse for a little bit. Everybody's gone through it. But at some point, you got to realize that you're a part of something bigger. You're part of a team. You're part of where the firm's headed. And it's your day-to-day. -day. You're probably spending more time at your job than at home. So if you don't have that sense of well-being and that you're fitting in, whether it be from the cultural side of the firm or the actual work that you're doing, it's kind of senseless. It gets to a point where it's very repetitive. So you have to find your little mission within your day-to-day -day life and feel a little more integrated and that, again, you're a part of something bigger to feel that loyalty to the firm. Because I think that's one of the reasons I wasn't planning on leaving ever. Brookapel was I was very loyal to my team. I thought, you know, I had their backs, they had my back. And it's not I take lightly because having a team to work on stuff with you, but also be people who you can trust with whatever it is, whether it be work, whether it be life, whatever it is, they were there for me. And I think that's very special in general. And so finding that, I've definitely been lucky enough to find it again. But it made me more motivated and probably spent more hours on whatever I was working on because of it. Ooh, that's interesting. I wouldn't <laughs> mind unboxing that in a minute. But... Yeah, yeah. Miranda, let's let you get you a chance. So the sense of belonging to me is like of medium importance, I would say. I wouldn't say it's super important. And Marion sort of said it, but I do feel like I have more sense of belonging and more loyalty to a project and that project team rather than the company that I'm working for. I feel that the draw to see a project through and work with the team, and it's not always the same team. I have the great opportunity of getting to work with different teams all the time. So it's not necessarily a certain set of people, but just a loyalty to put out good product, good materials, good sets going out and having a sense of belonging to the team and the project that moves the needle for me a lot more than the firm. Not that I don't love my firm. Now, I put this in there because Miranda and I have talked about it before. And for me, 
feeling like I was a part of something bigger than just doing a job has mattered. It makes a difference for me. And it's one of the things that when things aren't going well, that actually when somebody might go, I'm out of here, I actually kind of dig in a little bit because I go, it's up to me to make it better. If it's not what it is, or I don't like what it is, Andrew's laughing because he, this is like that zombie question, you know, with me thinking I need to save the world. It's just part of it. If something's not what it should be, or if I think I can make it better, that actually gets me more engaged and more involved. And so as a result, I really believe in the buy-in, the sense of ownership. So if someone's investing in you and they're giving you these opportunities, the idea that you can feel like you have some ownership in what's happening you're less likely to just flip the switch to go do the same thing, but for somebody else. Because at some point, for me, it's not just about the money. That's actually the last topic I have. So if we run along, we won't talk about that one. <laughs> okay, so let me jump in here real quick, though. So um, my question to you both is, in regard to that, I'm curious, is it bigger gestures or daily smaller gestures that earn you that sense of belonging? Is it more if a firm or a company does these big grand gestures, or is it small things every day that make you feel more a sense of belonging? I'm just curious. So to me, I think when I was younger, it was more about hearing the feedback, learning something new every day, and being given the opportunities to work on something bigger and being exposed to these things. Like the actual work I was getting put into, it was the opportunities versus just a little, the gift card is fine, like that's nice, but it, <laughs> it was... <laughs> not as rewarding as this feeling of growth, of belonging, of I'm building on something. I think, like Bob said, money and compensation will always be tied to it. That's like the easiest token of appreciation you can get. But let's be honest here, like our industry, we're always usually working overtime and that's not compensated. So it's not a one-on-one kind of agreement. So I think these other bigger things that are feeding your soul in that sense are more important. You know, it's kind of interesting. There's a reason why I haven't made our conversation about salary, because the truth is, is we all want to make money. Right. We all need to make money. We would all like to make more money. Yeah, we all want to <laughs> yes. make more. So it doesn't really matter. We all wish we were making more than we are right now. Exactly. It's yeah. just a given. But yeah. It doesn't matter where you're at. I removed that from it because there's not like, somewhere in, somewhere in, would you like to make more money? You're like, yes. All right. Well, there we go. That's the end of that. There's, it's not a debate. But it's also, would you like to make more money and then everything else stays the same? And then that's when you realize money is not that important. Well, you know, Andrew and I have had, we probably in some capacity with hypothetical and whatnot. Yeah, have, bounce around that a bunch. Have like really thought about the idea, would you rather make a lot of money and do something you hate or make enough money and do something that feeds your soul? And we almost always choose the make enough money to do what I got to do and actually enjoy living my life as opposed to... <laughs> I pump out portageons all day long and yeah. make a quarter. Except for here recently, the last time we discussed it, we were talking about now our age is playing a factor yes. in that because we want to retire. And if we were making $8 million a year to pump portageons, that might be okay for a couple of years and I could quit. But Hey, but you also said that you would rent mopeds on a beach island and just go to the bar at the end of the day. I know. Oh, I would love that. Yes. So it's it has to do with so quality of life figures into that a little bit, and quality of life is not normally figured into, yeah. like not measured by how big your paycheck is, but we, we can't ignore the fact that that's a consideration for a lot of people because invariably, whenever we talk about a subject where financial compensation 
could be a key aspect of that conversation. Somebody will come in and say, I just want to be able to pay for health care. Like they make it sound like architects are barely like we're lucky if we have a box to live under a bridge in. And it's not quite that extreme, but I will acknowledge that some people are like, it's hard. I want to buy a house. I can't afford to buy a house. I want to be able to buy a car. I'm driving a 10 year old car that's broke down on rebuilt tires. I get all of that. So I'm not discounting it. I'm not saying that it's not a valid consideration, but I wanted this conversation to be more about the things that move the needle beyond somebody writing you a check because we kind of danced around it a little bit, not avoiding it on purpose. But the idea is at some point, I can't just keep paying people more, just like I can't keep promoting people to be senior project designer because then there's nobody left to to do the work that the non-senior project designers do. There's a balance that you have to strike. And so I'm going to move into the subject pretty quick, but it's the idea that if you turn your job and your relationship with your employer and make it transactional, meaning you pay me a salary, I do the job you hired me for. That's what this is. I got no problems with that. All day long, I will high five you. But then all of a sudden you come and you go, I want a raise. I'm like, why? Why should I give you a raise? You're like, because I'm important. Like, well, it's transactional. You remember that we set this up to be that way. I pay you this much money and you do this job for me. You want more money? You're going to do more job. That's how this works. And that's not an architecture thing. That's a life thing. So that big pile of (laughs) on the plate now, let's move into the, the last topic that I have. And it has to do with flexibility. And flexibility is a I mean, you could consider compensation a type of flexibility because it's what allows you to have options. But in this case, we're talking about work from home or hybrid work policies. And this is really, I know this is something that's very particular to Marianne because her family lives back in Venezuela and being able to go back and see them was like a really big deal. And literally everything we've been talking about has been impacted in some way due to the pandemic and COVID still to this day. Everything is different. Nobody had a work from home policy or a flex policy like we talk about now, two and a half years ago. Yeah, in 2019, they didn't exist. It didn't exist. So now there's a lot of trying to feel things out, like all things. There seemed to be a pendulum. At one point, it was really, really extreme. Everybody worked from home. And then it was kind of like, oh, in our industry, it's really hard, depending on the role that you have or the job that you have or the task or the assignments that you have. Some things lend themselves more to like, well, you can just work from home more than the, this person who has to touch base with people all day long. It's just, it's not the same to do it over a Teams call than it is in person. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the idea that hybrid work policy or, or work-life balance, it's not a one-way street. How does that move the needle for you guys? Marianne, Miranda, how does employee flexibility, employer flexibility, considerations to letting you live your life and work at the same time. What does that look like for you guys? Since you mentioned it, I'm going to go first real quick. And you made me sound very exotic with the going home to Venezuela. But honestly, yeah. You are very exotic. (laughs) Come on. Okay, sure. This comes from a place where we're all in the people business, like you're saying it. It's more of a service that we're providing for people. It's harder sometimes to do this over teams. But in the long run, it's about these meaningful relationships, whether it be with employees or clients that you're building. So I get that sense. But to contradict that is everybody is also dealing with things outside of work. And when I first got out of school, I would say yes to everything. Whatever was on my plate, I just was trying to soak it all in, was saying yes to every opportunity that came my way. 
And eventually you look back and you're kind of burnt out because that's all you put your time into. And it's not, work isn't always everything for everybody. So I think it might be a personal topic here, but to me, it was, how do I find the time to do other things that are important to me while keeping what I built over time at my previous job? So built this trust and this expectation of Marianne will work a hundred hours and obviously I'm exaggerating, but will work however many hours she needs to work to get it done. And then maybe it's you get engaged like Miranda, get married. Maybe you have kids. There's stages of life that you didn't sign up for originally. And now you're dealing with your employer's expectations of you still have to handle everything you're handling now, plus all the extra work you're doing, which again, you're not getting compensated for it, but that's not even the important part here. To me, it's more about How do I find the balance to do the important things outside of work without letting work people down? So obviously, I'm at a great place right now with a more flexible firm. So I think finding that place that where you fit in and whatever your specific situation is kind of fits into your work life is very important. And that's something you know, I was willing to sacrifice for a few years when I first got out of school. Because it is harder when you get out of school, you're just trying to see what the next step is. There's a roadmap like we talked about. So I think saying yes to everything was great for a while, but now it's more about being intentional with the yeses I say and setting up boundaries so that it doesn't burn you out in the long run. Yeah. Okay. All right, Miranda, here's your chance. So all of those things. I think <laughs> yes. I think we can yes. all agree. I think we can right. all agree with those things. So, I'll answer the question by going off-road a little bit because I don't want to just regurgitate any of that. It's all true. So, the thing that first came to mind when you asked this question about flexibility for me was flexibility in not only management styles, but just like flexibility in the people themselves. So, not only the flexibility for me to say hey, I've got a dentist appointment and you being flexible enough to say, that's fine. I know you'll get your work done. But also knowing that someone like me might need a different management style than someone else and having as a manager, the self-awareness, but also the awareness of those around you to kind of figure those things out and know that everyone is not a one size fits all. This person might need a daily check-in and this person will thrive and come back with a finished product when they said they would deliver it. And you can count on that. So knowing how people are different and within a team, it might be hard because you might want to do a certain number of check-ins with the whole team and not everybody needs that. But understanding how you can help people grow over time and how you can cater to people who need different things and help them grow in that. And the example I have is one of my interns this summer, I didn't check on them for a while. And when I come back, it seemed like they had so many questions. And I was like, hey, you can reach out to me with those questions anytime you need. I know I'm busy, but you can come find me. And I came back a few days later and they had another list of questions for me. And so you have to get past that mental block and think, okay, this person is one of those people who needs me to check on them more often because they're not going to reach out, whether that's an inexperienced thing or just a personality confidence thing. They're not going to reach out to me, so I need to go check on them more often and be a more effective manager and be more flexible for them and adapt to what they might need and make that work in my schedule. Sure. I had a great experience at Boca Powell with that Randa that you just said. Mary Walker, who's a great manager, came to me when I was just right out of school and she was like, what's your work style? Do you work well with tasks? Do you work well with lists? What is it that you need from me? And that's such a huge skill set because I feel like 
you're just assuming you know this person's work style. You're just assuming they're going to do this A, B, and C and get it done for you, which they will, but everybody works differently. So that happened to me again at my new firm because you're readjusting to people and different work styles and building on trust is another huge deal. In order to have that flexibility, you need to show them what you got. You need to put in that time and effort. It's not just given to you, which eventually when you do spend the time and effort, you're looking back and expecting that from your firm. But it's also if you have that trust, you have that flexibility, then I think everybody is happy and it's something that you can keep working on over time and it'll work out for both parties if you're transparent and communicating like that. You know, I will say this, obviously, from a management style perspective, you can't treat everybody the same way and not be a good manager. I mean, you can't bend people to your style. You need to, in order to be effective, sometimes figure out it's your message, but you have to figure out how they need to receive it in order to understand it. So you have to craft the same message in different ways, depending on who you're talking to. But one of the things that's kind of interesting that this was a bigger firm issue for me. And it had to do with the idea that you have to, as a company, come up with a policy, something that says, here are the rules that we are going to apply to everybody because we have to have this same level playing field. We have to say, these are the guidelines, these are the standards, these are the rules, these are the expectations. And a lot of times the things that set the parameters to those policies are like the 5%. It's not the majority. There's going to be those people that are going to try to find a way to abuse whatever latitudes that you would put out there if you just said, it's almost not fair to have Marianne, you and Miranda on the show because you guys were never problem employees. No one ever said, oh, those two, oh, they just don't do their work and I know they're taking naps. That was never, like, it's different. That's not true for everybody. I know of some people that if you don't go check on them when they finish the work, They're just going to hang out. Nothing's going to happen until they're not going to come ask you, all right, I'm done. What's the next thing you need me to do? There are people that are like that. The observant manager will figure out that those people, you got to check in on them so that they don't do that. That's part of one of the policy limitations that you deal with sometimes, because now if you're going to make a policy that you're going to apply unilaterally, because that's how policies work in companies. Like I can't have 12 policies for you're a type A employee, so you get this policy and you're a B, you know, so you get this. It doesn't work like that. It's the 5% that set the rules for the 95. Yeah, I've always thought about it. Like I mentioned, it's a privilege. You're given the privilege of flexibility. It's not given to you. You've worked on it. You built this trust and now you're given this opportunity. It's always funny how everybody else thinks about it the other way versus like the 5% is the standard versus everybody starts at 100%. And whoever doesn't meet that 100%, you don't get that anymore. And I know there is no way to cater everybody. It's just... There's always going to be somebody who's not going to do their job, no matter if they're in the office or not. Even if you're looking over their shoulder, they're not going to be doing well. So it's more about, in my head, and obviously you're dealing with a bigger firm, Bob, but it's the privilege to have. And it's something that at first should be provided or an opportunity and then it gets taken away. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, as much as I love that, now I have the enforcement, like the amount of work that I've just introduced from an enforcement standpoint. It's like, oh my God, I got to hire five more HR people just to manage the 13 (laughs) different policies on work from home. I mean, it starts to become untenuous. But one of the things that we do talk about every now and then has to do with, are there milestones that somebody can reach? We do this for the vacation. When you get hired, you get two weeks vacation. But when you've been here five years, you get three weeks vacation. When you've been here 15 years, you get 
whatever it is. I'm, all those are made up numbers, but you know what I mean. Once you've been around, we know who you are. There's certain additional considerations that become eligible to you. And I would think that it's not unreasonable to say, here's this policy. It's kind of strict, but once you prove yourself, this is not an issue. You've earned this. It unlocks new layers, like, you know. <laughs> new level. New level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, new level. I love that. New level. Unlock. You just leveled up to work from home. You know, it doesn't seem unreasonable. Yeah. It doesn't seem unreasonable to me, but. Yeah. But apparently it's harder than it sounds. You would think it's just like getting vested in retirement or something like that. Yeah. But the funny thing, I'm just sitting here while we're talking about this, especially earlier when we're talking about different flexibility. I was imagining an engineering firm having the same conversation and it would go much differently (laughs) because it would just be one policy for everyone for everything and no flexibility whatsoever. Well, they just unplug those engineers and put them in their box overnight. That's how that works. (laughs) Put them on the charger. Probably, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. right. They, yeah, they put them on the charger. They back up into their charging station, and that's where they stay. <laughs> Robots. Yeah, I will I tell you, I actually went out and had drinks with a guy last night who is, I mean, he's going to end up being like the regional manager for a really large engineering firm. And I told him about what we were talking about today. And honestly, all the things that we talked about, he's like, I deal with all that same stuff mm. in our office. And there's a couple thousand employees. I mean, like they're way bigger yeah. than I am. And he goes, we talked about mentorship programs and if they work and what makes the difference and why are some people better at that than others or work from home policies. We talked about all the stuff. We talked about transactional relationships from people that go, you hired me to do this and you're going to pay me that and that's what you get. And I'm not going to answer your phone call at 501. And there's all that sort of thing that we talked about. It was like the exact same. It's like I was talking to myself. <laughs> Maybe that's why me and this guy are buddies. Yeah, except for the <laughs> maybe <laughs> the thing that I was thinking about, though, any engineers that I've ever known or worked with, yes, they have a little bit of that kind of idea, but they've all been time clock punchers. You're there at 8 o'clock, not 8.01, and you're there till whatever. To me, that's the thing that I find is different or yeah. also kind of crazy Yeah, to be that strict about time when I feel like flexibility is really important to us as creative people. Well, you know, we have that policy in our office. You know, you don't have to show up. Miranda's at her desk at 7.30. I used to be at my desk by 7 o'clock. And you'd see people roll in at 9.30. And then when you leave at 4.30 or even 5, people look at it like, oh, you're cutting out early. And I was like, I was here two hours before you even showed up. And I guarantee you, you're not going to be here till two hours after I leave. Like the early arrivers don't get the same juice that the work late people get. And uh, I used to hate it. And now I, now I don't yeah. worry about it. I was like, whatever, I got a job to do. And if I don't do my job, that's when it'll become a problem. Yeah. It's not the time. It's not the punch in the clock stuff so much uh, at a certain point. But see, but I'd show up at 930 and I'd stay till yeah. 730 or 8 with no problem whatsoever. I'd stay till 10 o'clock because that's just how my cycle works. But yeah. Yeah. And see, now when Bob sees me leaving at 430, he goes, oh, banker's hours. <laughs> <laughs> every time i don't know if it's every time come on now no way I it's can't every time you that. see me leaving i see you leaving sometimes i sneak out so you don't see me yeah no no i see miranda just, she picks up her bag and she's like whoa there's like a smoke outline of miranda by her desk right like as a cartoon yes yes so when she's <laughs> gone mean, she's out the door i'll take it as a compliment yeah. moral of the story don't do. stand next to bob no no that's all you gotta I know i can't seem to avoid it don't <laughs> Based on experience. Yes. No, no, no. I'm not that way. Come on. I'm not that way. I've never, I think in the five years that Miranda has worked 
in close proximity to me have I ever hassled you about the amount of hours you're working. No. Ever. Yeah. But I feel like there's a there's a level of trust because you know that even if I'm only working 40 one week, I'm going to get what I said I would get done, done and on time. Well, that can't be said for everyone. Yeah, you're right. It's not true. But this is something and I'll I'll put this out there and I'll let you guys comment on it. Then we're going to move into the last part of the show cuz we don't want to keep you guys all night. But one of the things that we talk about is when you take on responsibilities outside the office because it makes you a more rounded person, it allow you to pursue your interests. So Miranda is part of this Emerging Professionals program. She helps people train and teaches on taking the ARE. In my mind, that qualifies as part of her job, even though it's not an assignment, because she's representing Boca Pal out in the wild. So if she just clocked a straight 40, and then she goes spend six hours doing AIA stuff or whatever, I go, it's the same thing. That counts. In my mind, that's 46 hours now, because people are going to see, oh, this is the kind of person they have at that company. I'm on board with that. Like that, mm -hmm. That's, in my mind, that qualifies. But not a lot of people, they don't do that. And in fact, when we change the policy that we'll pay for you to be a member of any affiliate organization that you get involved in, which was not the case before, you had to be an associate or hire to get that. And I was like, we got to get rid of that because if we allow these people to pursue these opportunities, and this ties into a lot of it, what if you're not getting the leadership opportunities in your office because there's not bandwidth for you to take on a role? Well, you can go get that down at the ULI or with AIA or mm -hmm. NCIDQ or like some other affiliate organization. That's a portable skill. You get to take that with you, but I get to benefit from it as well as your employer. It has value. Mm -hmm. So I consider it as part of your development that you're doing because you spend all day working and then you're going to go do more of that stuff in your own time. I go, that counts. That hundred percent counts in my book. And I think you mentioned something super interesting about the policy, what it was before and what it is now. A lot of the younger people have more time and more energy to do these things and they're more social in general. So it's silly to me to think you got to get to this level in order to go out there and put the firm's name out there or market your firm or do more BDE because realistically, when you're right out of school, you're normally just focused on work. You have free time versus a few years in, you're building a family or whatever else you're doing. You have a little more responsibility outside of work. So I think it gets harder and harder to do. And having the time to build into your schedule and having an employer, like Sean O'Brien's super great. He is mentoring me right now. And he's allowed me a few hours a week to do more business development stuff. It might not come back to the firm immediately because that's the other part of it. How do you quantify what Miranda's efforts are outside of work? You can't really know until maybe years from now that comes back because you've built a network over time. So you're building your network while you're at work. You're also putting the firm's name out there. And honestly, we're not getting paid to do any of that. So to me, that's the huge benefit if somebody is doing it and why not allow for it in you might not see the results right away, but it's definitely going to come back and be a positive thing for the firm long term is my opinion. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah, I agree. The one thing I want to catch on there is also that I'm always the person that harps on it, but Bob kind of does too, is that when you're young, you do have a lot more free time than you actually think. The older you get, the less free time you have, even though you would think it's inverse, but in the reality, it's not. Yep. Your life just gets busier and busier and busier and busier. The older you get until maybe you retire and then you go rent mopeds on a beach. But 
I was like, and then you die. Up <laughs> until that point, though, you continually get, get busier. And so it's easier in some ways, I think, to get involved and actually use that time early in your career to build that network that's outside of work. I mean, it may be work-related, affiliated to work, but you've got actually more time to build that than, than benefits you and possibly your employer later on down the line. Yeah. Okay. We're going to move into the more serious part of the show now, and that is we're going to do a would you rather question. And since we have four people on the show, well, that's why I decided we'd do a would you rather because it would take too long to rank three things for four people or to have a really interesting hypothetical question that we all unbox and, and kind of get into. So, and since we're talking about workplace and career advancement and even the perception of the work environment to a certain extent, today's would you rather is going to be about two less than ideal work choices. <laughs> And which situation is the lesser of two evils? Great. So you understand the would the rather you either do this one or that one, and they're both supposed to have like something bad about them, and you got to just pick. This is not that bad, or this one's better than that, or this is whatever it is. And I will tell you, these are both terrible. <laughs> Amazing. Can't wait. <laughs> you have to choose one. Okay. So would you rather boldly announce? Bing bong. When you enter a room for every meeting you participate in, or say high five and high five yourself after making a point in those same meetings. <laughs> bing bong. That's, that's what you got to do. You got to walk in and go bing bong. That's crazy, Marion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably blame it on like, oh, I forgot my English. That's a Spanish word. I don't know. I feel like I could play that oh. off way better than like the high five like no no i'm self five all day every day yourself yeah <sighs> yeah i do it sometimes yeah. anyway you gotta high five yourself okay but here's the thing the real thing is if you don't ever make a point in a meeting then you, you never have to do that yeah i could just stay silent so you could just sit silent in every meeting that was it and it's just like normal so as long as you're just hanging out or or you can make a really good point and high five yourself yeah i guess or just yeah you're really victorious but okay look the reason why the the bing bong thing has to happen no matter what no so all these people i don't think i've been on a call like rarely am i on a call with miranda where she doesn't have to speak at some point that's true there's no free passes i mean you're not going to get very far in your career if you never speak during a <laughs> meeting but you didn't say not speak you said it when you make a strong point Okay, when you say, hey, we need to da-da-da-da-da-da, high five. Okay, like, so that's anytime when that you happens. speak. So do I have yeah. to announce and the Do I have to say high five or can I just do yes. it? Okay. No, you have to say high five and then high five yourself, which I kind of think is worse because you're high fiving yourself. Like Wait, no one else is with you on this. Isn't that what Bob does yeah. every day? High five. <laughs> uh, uh, I've never high five myself in my life. Can I say self five though? Like if I just go self five. <laughs> Can I do that? See, I don't think that's that bad. Yeah, right. But I, I have know. a question. Still... The bing bong one. What if I'm just early to every meeting? What if I do it before See, anyone else go. gets in the room or joins the call? Well, that's just it. So I did put you have to boldly announce it. So if you're the first person in the room, there you go. Loophole. But you can't walk in the room and just go bing bong. Like you have to. Ah, like there's got to be like a <laughs> bing bong. You got to do it. Like there's a some in. Hey, yeah, go bing bong. You got to. Yeah. People are going to look. And all of a sudden, now you're the bing bong guy. 
because it's every, you don't have to do it constantly, but it's every meeting you go into. Hey, that's Brandy right there. They won't forget you or your name. I'm just... <laughs> yeah, true. Or what yeah. if you're the high five guy? <laughs> well, that's just dumb. <laughs> I just put it on my business card. Bing bong. That's Bing. your title. <laughs> Senior bing bong. Yeah. And they, they just create a little jingle to go with it. And then you're done. I'm going high five, final answer. Okay. So Miranda's the high five. Marianne. Bing bong. I don't know. <laughs> you're bing bong. <laughs> I think I'm going high five because it gives me some out. Or there may be meetings where I don't want to speak. I mean, I send a lot of Zoom meetings now where I, and so I don't speak anyway. So I can avoid that. Just a background character. Yeah, I'm just there. To, I observe or I'm like, <laughs> oh. ridiculous. I'm just going to check out. Not really, but yeah. Because the bing bong thing, now that I think about it, that's terrible if it's client and I have to go to. Yeah. And <laughs> high fiving yourself is not. <laughs> I could be quiet in a client meeting. I would have the choice to possibly not speak in a client meeting. But oh, no matter yes. what, I'm bing bonging every client meeting. That's a good point. I think the high five thing gives me some options. I'm never in the room with the client and I don't speak. I dare you guys to try this in your next meeting. <laughs> okay. I'm definitely bing bong. Really? Because you walk in the room and you're bing bong and it's done and then you can be intelligent and make points but <laughs> if you have to high five yourself after some point you're sitting at a table and you just said some everybody's looking at you and you go high five it's so <laughs> awkward it's worse you look stupid you look stupid um i'm saying high five is all right so it's the blondes versus the brunettes wait that's blonde apparently <laughs> What? Bob and Marianne, the blondes. <laughs> it's closer than it is to brunette, for sure. Okay, that's interesting. So we have, we split the difference. We have two high fives and two bing bongs. <laughs> you also didn't say it was a boldly high five. It's like two fingers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, that's... A, there was no volume predicated. In come that. on, we all know what the high five is. Both options are at high volume, as my You're not doing takeaway. it under the table. You can't hide it, <laughs> right? You can't just go like... But you didn't say that. You didn't say that. You're now you're adding stuff. No, no, I'm clarifying. I think it would be more creepy if you whispered it. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It probably would be. That's a good point. Just every time you're talking, you just go. (laughs) You fake sneeze. You went high five. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I also didn't say how closely they need to be done. You could say high five, and then like ten minutes later. (laughs) <laughs> no, I get it over with. Like you're getting a fly or a mosquito or something. It's got to be. Mm-mm. Can't wait for y'all it's to be bing bong. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, no. Okay, I'll let you know. We'll feel. It's gonna I'll, be a I'll, weird inside joke now. I'll get back on this. Yes, but okay. one meeting is fine. You could bing bong for one meeting, and people just gonna go, "What's that all about?" But you continually do it, then it'll be something. And you're the bing bong guy. Yeah, because it's also it's every team meeting. Miranda, you, me, and the eight other people working on our project, mm-hmm. I walk in the room, I'm bing bong. I'd have to do the high five, too. It's like there's no escape. If you did it on Zoom, you could time it so that when somebody <laughs> else joins the meeting, you're just at the same time, it goes bing bong. You go bing bong. Right, right as they do that's it. Right. And See, so it's like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Doorbell noise. All right. That's, a, that's another you, point for bing bong there. So, yeah. okay. I think we've reached a point where I'm going to call that a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 135, Employee Takeover. I'd also like to say thanks to Marianne Shear and Miranda Davis for joining us today and sharing their insights. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Bob and Andrew. Thanks, Marianne. Thank you both. This was fun. Yeah, thanks for joining us. 
Special thanks to our sponsor, Peterson, which manufactures pack-clad architectural metal cladding systems. Visit pac-clad.com to learn more. We'd also like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? We're available on all major podcast platforms, so hit that subscribe button and you'll get notified every two weeks when we publish a spectacular new episode. And while you're there, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star Mentorship Programs Actually Work rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this collaborative episode and all the website has to offer. Can you even add your voice and join the conversation? Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.